Uh, well, friends, uh, you might have heard the name Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, who was, of course, the creator and author of the Sherlock Holmes series. Uh, it seems, uh, and you might know this uh, popular story, uh, it seems that Arthur Conan Doyle was a bit of a practical joker because uh, there is a well-known story about how he sent a telegram uh, to 12 of his close friends who were greatly admired and respected members of society. Uh, the telegram simply had the words, flee, all is discovered. And the story goes that within 24 hours, all 12 uh, friends had fled the country. Uh, now, whether this story is true or uh, is an urban legend, it does illustrate, doesn't it, how people can have a guilty conscience. Uh, you know, we all have secrets that we want to hide from others. Uh, for many Christians, uh, although we are uh, the people who are promised by God that we have forgiveness of sins and uh, our sins have been removed from us, uh, it's often the case that we also can live with a sense of guilt, isn't it? Because we are deeply aware of what we are like on the inside. And so Christians can often have feelings of guilt and hypocrisy and inadequacy because, you know, we feel as though we're not doing too well in the Christian life. Perhaps we're not doing enough in the Christian life. You know, I'm not praying enough. I'm not sharing the gospel boldly enough, like other people. Uh, I'm not giving enough. I've just spent too much money on my latest purchase. There's all sorts of things that we can feel guilty about. Uh, now, of course, not all Christians live with such guilt, but uh, if you're anything like me, uh, you will know exactly uh, what I'm talking about this morning. Uh, one commentator says, uh, I'm convinced that most serious Christians live their lives with an almost constant level of guilt. Of course, sometimes it's right to feel guilty, isn't it? Because at times we are actually guilty of real sin against God and against each other. You know, if we don't feel the sting of conscience and have feelings of guilt at times when, when we are confronted by God's word so that we uh, uh, confess our sins to God and, and repent of those things before God, then I, I would suggest that there is something uh, wrong in our Christian lives. And yet the problem is that sometimes we can feel guilty all the time about our inadequacies or you know, not doing enough or not being enough. And we can simply learn to live with these feelings of guilt and become stuck in our Christian lives. What are we to do if we constantly feel guilty in our Christian lives? What does God say to us as we struggle uh, with these sorts of feelings? Well, this morning we come to the end of this uh, wonderful letter to the Colossians that we've been uh, looking at for the past few months. And uh, as the Apostle Paul brings this particular letter to a close, you can see there in the passage that he speaks about three things, three things that can often cause Christians to feel guilty. Uh, what are those things? Well, 
You can see there that the things that Paul speaks about are prayer, um, sharing the gospel with outsiders, and thirdly, commitment to the gospel cause. Uh, But, brothers and sisters, as we go through this part of God's word, I want you to see that God's word does not motivate us by guilt. But what God's word does is it shows us uh, the, the graciousness and the kindness and mercy of God as the motivator to do these things. Well, uh, you can see in our passage there uh, that the first thing that Paul speaks about is prayer. Uh, Of course, Paul is a great model of prayer in the New Testament, isn't he? Uh, He's the one who began this letter, if you remember, by saying that he has not ceased to pray for these Colossian Christians that they might be filled with a knowledge of God's will in their lives. But here he issues a serious call for the Colossian Christians, and I take it for all Christians, to themselves be praying. Uh, He says in chapter 4, verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer. Notice that this command to continue in prayer assumes that the Colossians are already praying in their lives. Uh, You see, Christians are the ones who pray because uh, we have faith in God our Father to give us the good things that we ask for in prayer. Atheists do not pray to God because they don't trust him. They don't have faith in him. In fact, prayer is just faith that is articulated to God, isn't it? And so the call here is to continue, to continue doing what you are doing steadfastly in prayer. It is to be devoted to prayer. It is not to be distracted from uh, this important practice. But how are we to pray? Well, you can see uh, there in uh, verse 2 again that we are to be watchful as we pray. Uh, The word watchful here uh, literally means to stay awake. Now, it certainly does help, doesn't it, that uh, we physically stay awake and uh, not fall asleep during times of prayer. I'm sure you'll agree. But uh, I don't think Paul here is speaking about, you know, physically staying awake during times of prayer. Um, Rather, what he's saying is that as we pray, we should be awake and alert to the spiritual realities of what God has done in this world and what God continues to do in this world, you see. For uh, that is what Paul has been speaking about in this letter all along, hasn't he? Uh, If you remember, Paul has spoken of the cosmic reconciliation of all things to Christ through his death on the cross. He has spoken of how Christ is now uh, reconciling those who were once alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds through his blood shed on the cross so that those who put their faith in this Christ will die with him on the cross and will rise with him to life in heaven. He has spoken of how Christ will appear once again in glory 
along with all those who put their trust in him. You see, to be watchful as we pray is to have these kind of realities firmly in our minds so that they shape the things that we pray for. But notice, friends, what prayer is to be accompanied by. Paul says again in verse 2 that the prayer of the Colossians is to be accompanied by thanksgiving. It is with thanksgiving. You see, friends, uh, this is why prayer is not something that ought to be motivated by guilt, isn't it? What Paul is saying here is that prayer is part of the thankful response that we have to God for his astonishing grace and mercy to us in the Lord Jesus Christ and for his grace in revealing uh, what his plans for this world are. You know, I grew up in Christian circles where I regularly heard preaching about prayer. Uh, I remember once hearing the story of John Hyde, who uh, apparently was a a missionary uh, to India. Has anyone heard the name John Hyde before? Um, Any of our Indian friends, perhaps? Um, The story goes that John Hyde prayed so much that he actually made grooves in his hardwood floor that were kind of carved out by his knees as he knelt by his bed uh, day after day and night after night in prayer to God. Now, uh, it's wonderful that men like this uh, were people of prayer. But I remember always feeling slightly guilty whenever I heard stories like this because it simply highlighted just how inadequate uh, my own prayer life was. Uh, This isn't helped uh, by the fact that often Christians, uh, probably with good intentions, uh, try to encourage each other by kind of saying or giving the message that you should be doing more for Christ. You should be praying more, doing more, serving more, rather than encouraging each other to be the kind of people that Christ has already made us to be, you see. But notice here that God's word is not about trying to get us to pray more out of a sense of guilt. Rather, the way God's work powerfully works in our lives is to highlight the grace and the mercy and kindness of God in saving us through Christ and revealing to us his plans for this world. And so, my brothers and sisters, if you are and I are people who understand these things, then continue to pray with watchfulness and with thankfulness in your hearts to God. But what will we pray for if we are watchful and thankful in our Christian lives? Well, uh, in other parts of Scripture, Paul invites Christians to pray for anything and everything uh, that is on our hearts. But here... Notice that the thing Paul asks for, uh, asks prayer for, rather, is that God would open a door for the word of the gospel to make progress in this world. Uh, notice there in chapter 4, verse 3, he says, At the same time, pray for us, 
that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Friends, don't you find this extraordinary? I mean, imagine you are the Apostle Paul. Uh, Imagine you are in prison uh, somewhere uh, in Rome, uh, probably. Uh, You're in prison for proclaiming Jesus as Lord in the face of uh, those who uh, were declaring that Caesar was Lord. Uh, Imagine you're in prison and you're cold. Imagine you're hungry. Imagine you're staring at your prison door that's been bolted shut by your imprisoners. What would you ask other Christian people to pray for you? Well, I don't know about you, but but, uh, if it were me, um, I would have asked them to pray for my freedom, my comfort, my conveniences to be restored to me. But not Paul, you see. For Paul asked the Colossians to pray that God would be at work, not in opening his prison door, but in opening a door for the gospel to make progress. It's not that Paul liked prison. It's not that he enjoyed being there. But as someone who was watchful of the things that God was doing in this world and thankful in his Christian life for the things that God was doing, Well, he understood that the most important door to be opened was a door for the gospel. It is a door that is far more important because people's eternities hang on it. It is a door that is firmly shut by the present powers of darkness in this world and which can only be opened by the power of God himself. And so Paul asked for prayer, that this door would be opened. He asked for prayer that he might declare the mystery of Christ, which is the open secret that Christ, through the proclamation of the gospel, is bringing Jew and Gentile to salvation in him. And he asked for prayer that he would speak this gospel clearly to those around him. What are the things that you and I are praying for uh, at the moment? Uh, Especially during this time of coronavirus, when uh, it so often feels like we're prisoners in our own home, I wonder. Uh, It's so easy to pray simply for our own freedom and comfort and conveniences, isn't it? Um, as, as, As the most important things in our lives. But can you see that the one who is watchful and thankful is the one who will be praying for gospel doors uh, to be opened all around the world? Uh, Well, friends, uh, the next thing that Paul speaks about in our passage is the way that we relate to outsiders, uh, by which he means unbelievers. Uh, In the scriptures, those who by faith are in Christ... Uh, are those who are the insiders, those who have been redeemed and forgiven and uh, look forward to future glory, while those who are outside of Christ are those who have yet to receive Christ as Lord and therefore are unredeemed and unforgiven 
and do not have this hope of glory. Notice here that Paul begins by speaking more generally about how Christians are to behave towards outsiders. Um, You'll notice there in chapter 4, verse 5, that he says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Uh, The idea of of, of walking uh, in the New Testament is a metaphor for the Christian life. It's about how we think and, and speak and act as those who call Jesus our Lord. Uh, the idea of wisdom in the scriptures is that of applied knowledge. It's about living well with the knowledge that God has given you. In other words, walking in wisdom towards outsiders is, sim- is not simply about being nice people uh, around uh, unbelieving friends, family, and so forth. But it's about thinking and speaking and acting in a way that goes with the grain of what we know about God and what he is doing in this world, you see. Uh, That's why Paul goes on to say that walking in wisdom involves making the best use of our time. Literally, this phrase means to buy up the time. Uh, The picture is of a busy marketplace where you know, something is in short supply. Uh, think toilet paper. <laughs> and uh, everyone wants to buy the product before it's too late. Uh, it's that kind of thing. You know, think about the Boxing Day sales where people want to snap up uh, the, you know, the items that are in short supply and are valuable before they run out. What Paul is saying here is that Christians are the ones who know that time is in short supply. Christ is now reconciling to himself those who were once alienated and uh, hostile in mind and doing evil deeds so that they might die with him and rise to a new life with him in heaven. And soon it will be too late for people to turn to Christ because, you know, when Christ comes back in glory to judge this world, it will be too late. And so Christians are to be the ones who know how valuable this limited time is that God has given us, so that we buy it up and use it to the best advantage. Um, I have a friend whose Christian grandmother worked in a factory um, along with a a number of other women. Uh, He tells me that his grandmother was often terribly lonely, uh, eating lunch on her own day after day, because she didn't want to take part in the malicious gossip of the other ladies uh, in the factory. Uh, But my friend tells me that there was a day when one of these ladies uh, was going through a a particular uh, personal tragedy in her life, and uh, she came to his grandmother for help, because she could tell that there was something different about her. She wouldn't gossip to other people. She cared for people. Uh, She spoke to people differently. Uh, My friend's grandmother eventually led this person uh, to Christ himself. You see, making the best use of the time means living in such a way that you make the gospel attractive to the people around you. Again, this isn't God's word saying, you know, why aren't you doing more for Christ? 
This is God's word saying, I've revealed to you my plans for this world. I've revealed to you where everything is heading in this world and how short the time is. And so make the most of the time that God has given you. Further, notice that Paul doesn't simply stop with a call to live a godly life before outsiders. But he goes on to mention how we are to speak to outsiders. He says in uh, verse 6, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Uh, Now, friends, you might be aware that there is sometimes a debate that um, Christian people can have about just who should be doing the work of sharing the good news of Jesus to outsiders. Have you come across that sort of debate before? On the one hand, there are people who say that all Christians have the responsibility of sharing the good news of Jesus uh, with as many people as they can. Uh, The logic goes that if Jesus is the risen Lord of all things, and he will soon come to judge the world, at which time uh, outsiders who have not turned to Christ as Lord will be condemned to an eternity in hell, then How can Christians not share the good news that we have with with people? On the other hand, there are Christians who say that sharing the good news of Jesus should largely be left with with those who are particularly gifted in that area. Uh, Perhaps Mike Taylor, you can do all the work here. In fact, uh, these Christians might point out that There are not that many places in the New Testament where evangelism or or sharing the gospel is explicitly commanded. Of course, uh, Christians should share the good news of Jesus if someone asks them about such matters. But for most Christians, sharing the good news of Jesus is about responding to the questions that our friends might have rather than directly trying to share the good news with others and trying to make opportunities to do that. Uh, What do I think? Well, I think sharing the good news of Jesus with outsiders is actually the the privilege of every single person who belongs to Jesus. Uh, Why do I think that? Well, notice that the command in chapter 4, verse 6 is for our speech to be gracious. Now, um, whilst I agree that this is primarily saying that the manner in which we should speak to outsiders is to be gracious and kind and loving, it's hard to ignore that in the whole book of Colossians, the word grace also describes the content of the message itself. And so I wonder whether gracious speech here actually includes speaking to people of the grace of God. Further, notice that our speech in, chap- uh, notice that our speech in verse 6 is to be seasoned with salt. Now, it's hard to know precisely what Paul meant by this particular phrase, and uh, a lot of ink has been spilt over you know, uh, how salt was actually used in the ancient world. 
But I think what Paul is talking about here is flavorsome speech. Just as you would sprinkle salt, uh, you know, liberally over your food to make it flavorsome, this is a call to sprinkle your conversations and my conversations with topics that go beyond the mundane. To talk of things beyond the weather or the drudgeries of work or where we are going on the next holidays. Not that these things are wrong to talk about. Not that we can't engage in these sorts of conversations. But to move beyond them to speak of things of eternal significance, namely Christ. And why are we to do that? Well, in chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says, it is so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. In other words, friends, it's as we speak about the good news of Jesus that we will learn how to answer the questions that our friends have about Jesus. Now, our temptation is to think that we need to know the answer to every question that the unbelieving world will ask us before we are ready to tell them about Jesus. I think what God's word is saying to us is, speak about Jesus. Don't worry too much about getting every detail right or being able to answer every question. But the more we speak to people about the, the hope of eternal life that we have in Jesus, you will grow in being able to answer those questions. You will grow in being a better ambassador for Christ himself. It's clear that, um, of course, that you know this isn't saying that all of us will be uh, will be like Billy Graham. It's clear that some Christian people are more gifted than others, which really ought to be a a reason for rejoicing rather than comparison. But the call here is for every Christian to work at sharing the good news of Jesus with outsiders so that we make the best use of the time that God has given to us. Uh, Well, friends, uh, you've done really well, and uh, we've uh, now come to the final part of this wonderful letter. And uh, it's a part that is frequently overlooked, because it seems a bit miscellaneous, doesn't it? Uh, You know, Paul mentions a bunch of odd-sounding names in this last part, Uh, He passes along a number of greetings, and he issues some uh, miscellaneous-sounding instructions. Now, uh, there's lots of things we can explore in this last part of Colossians, but the big thing that I want you to see here is that the Apostle Paul is not doing the work of the gospel alone. Rather, he is doing it with fellow workers who are in Christ, who have come to understand the grace of God in their own lives. And so in verses uh, 7 to 9, Paul mentions two people who carried this letter uh, that Paul had written to the Colossians. Uh, They carried this letter from Paul, uh, probably in prison in Rome, uh, all the way to Colossae. Tychicus was a beloved and trusted fellow worker in Christ who accompanied Paul in in, uh, his various missionary journeys, which you can read about in the book of Acts. 
Uh, Onesimus uh, was an interesting character. He was a runaway slave who subsequently became a Christian when he met the Apostle Paul. And uh, here, what Paul is doing is he's, he's sending Onesimus back to his former owner called Philemon, who was a native of Colossae, uh, and it's likely that the church in Colossae uh, was meeting in uh, his house, the house of Philemon. Uh, you can read about all this in the letter to Philemon, uh, which is also in the New Testament. But these two fellow workers were the postmen who carried this letter that you and I have read um, from Rome to Colossae. And they were to encourage the Colossian Christians, not only with the letter, but also uh, with news about how Paul was doing. Uh, in verses 10 to 11, Paul sends greetings from uh, three Jewish Christians who were with him at the time he wrote this letter uh, in prison in Rome. It seems that these people were known to the Colossian church. Uh, Aristarchus was another missionary colleague uh, who was in prison together with Paul at the time of, of, of writing the letter. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, uh, also accompanied Paul on uh, his earlier missionary trips uh, before famously de deserting Paul, uh, if you know the story. Uh, which led to a sharp dispute between Paul and Barnabas. Uh, it seems like all is forgiven by this stage, for Paul tells the Colossian Christians to, to welcome this Mark if he comes to them. Uh, further, Paul also sends greetings from Jesus, not Jesus the Lord, but the one called Justice, whom we know very little about. But uh, it is very poignant that Paul says in verse 11, that towards the end of his earthly ministry, there were only three Jewish Christians who were standing with him and comforting him in the gospel. But it's not just these three Jewish Christians who were fellow workers in Christ with Paul, for in verses 12 to 14, uh, you can see there that Paul sends greetings from three Gentile Christians uh, who were also with him, three non-Jewish Christians. Um, Epaphras, we've, we've uh, met before, because uh, he was a native of Colossae, the one who first brought um, the, go the gospel um, to Colossae. Uh, here we are told that Epaphras is working hard for the Colossians, praying for them, um, that they might stand mature in the gospel, and also working hard for uh, the neighboring town of Laodicea, uh, who also heard the gospel, probably through Epaphras. Uh, Luke is the author of Luke's gospel, and uh, we are told here that he is a physician or a doctor. Uh, Demas is also a fellow worker in Christ, but the sad thing about Demas is that we later read in the book of 2 Timothy that um, he fell in love with the world and deserted the faith. Finally, we read some instructions to the Colossian church. We read that Paul asked the Colossians to pass on his greetings, um, not only to Colossae, but to the neighboring city of Laodicea, uh, the Christians there who met in, in the house of a lady called Nympha. Uh, we read that the Colossians are to exchange letters so that the letter to the Colossians is read in the church at Laodicea, 
and that the letter that Paul had written to the Laodiceans would be read in the church at Colossae. And uh, last but not least, we read that the Colossian Christians are to encourage a person called Archippus, whom again we know very little about, to keep persevering in the work of ministry. Uh, but friends, here's the point. All these people who are mentioned are ordinary Christian people who caught the vision of what God had done in their lives and was doing in this world. They had come to know God's grace for themselves in their lives and they wanted this grace for others because they knew that that was God's plan and purpose for this world. You know, if we were there at the time, this could have been us. In this list of people, you have those who are rich and those who are poor. You have those who are Jews and those who are Gentiles. You have those who have known failure in ministry as well as those who seem solid in ministry. You have those who are doctors and those who are slaves. In other words, these are ordinary Christians who have been so transformed by the grace of God that they are now willing to give everything towards the work of the gospel, the work of proclaiming Christ as Lord and presenting everyone mature in him on the last day. And that's why Paul ends not only with the words, remember my chains, to remind the Colossians that this work will cost them, but the words, grace be with you, for the work of growing the gospel is ultimately to be driven by the grace of God and not driven by guilty feelings about not doing enough in our Christian lives, you see. Um, I don't usually like to use illustrations about American sport because, uh, frankly, Australians don't like American sport. Is that right? But uh, I'm going to tell the story of what happened in 1994 when there was a strike in Major League Baseball in America. Now, what happened was that all the professional players uh, went on strike because of a wage dispute or something like that. And so what the league decided to do was to replace these professional players with ordinary people <laughs> who just wanted to play. Uh, and the story goes that each team selected some amateurs to play. And the games were quite comical because you had all these ordinary people running around in Major League Baseball playing mat matches. You know, overweight people, uh, people with day jobs, um, people who didn't really know what they were doing. <laughs> but all those who saw these games said that these ordinary people played with such joy and such heart because they knew that they were there only by grace. They had no right to be there, and yet they were picked uh, to be these players uh, who played this game on the big stage. And I want to suggest that the same is true for us. Uh, we are the ones who have been saved by grace, 
Uh, we are the ones who, whom God has graciously revealed what he is doing in this world and has revealed um, the past, the present, and the future. And so we are not to pray out of guilt, but with thanksgiving, because we know the grace of God who has redeemed us and forgiven us of our sins and has revealed to us his plans. We are to speak of Christ as Lord to outsiders, not out of guilt, but because of God's grace in revealing to us where everything is heading and that time is short. And we are to be committed to we are to be committed to the work of the Lord, whether it's through proclaiming Christ or praying for people or giving our money or giving our time because we have been given the grace of God who has chosen us to be on his team for his purpose and for his glory. If you are someone who feels guilty uh, all the time about your Christian life, uh, then the encouragement from God's word this morning is to look to God's grace. Look at what he has done for you. Look at what he has revealed to you and put these things into practice. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your kindness to us. We thank you for delivering us from the domain of darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of your beloved Son through his death on the cross for us. And we thank you that this has happened to us, not because of our own goodness, but solely because of your grace and mercy and kindness towards sinners like us. And Father, we thank you for the great privilege of now being your people who know your plans for this world to bring salvation to the nations and the shortness of time before our Lord Jesus returns. And so we pray that you would help us to participate in the work that you are doing. Help us to pray with watchfulness and thankfulness. Open doors of opportunity so that we might speak the word of grace to outsiders and help us to play our part in being fellow workers who serve our Lord Jesus, not out of guilt, but out of the abundance of your grace to us. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.